Wildfires are scorching the West Coast, leaving behind a path of death and destruction. Forecasters call it a bomb cyclone. Winds of 150 miles per hour. Tens of millions of Americans are dealing with dangerously high temperatures, with many areas hitting triple digits. Scientists say climate change is worsening flooding around the world. This is going to get really ugly really fast here. This is Ben Adler of Yahoo News and the Climate Crisis Podcast. Joining us today is Peter Gleick, a climate scientist who co-founded the Pacific Institute, who was interviewed by my colleague, David Knowles. David, can you just explain what is the water cycle and why did you want to interview Dr. Gleick about it? Well, Peter is somebody who is one of the foremost experts on how rising temperatures are impacting the water cycle. The water cycle as he likes to put it, really is the climate cycle. And that has to do with rainfall, evaporation, where it rains, when it rains, when people will have enough clean water, when people will have enough water to grow food, issues like that. The extreme drought that's playing out in states like California, but all across the West, is part of the water cycle. So this is something that is, um, when we look at water and how it's going to be there or not be there for our future, a lot of that is determined by rising global temperatures. We've seen that really dramatically play out in the West, but we are also seeing it play out in the East with extreme flash flooding. That's all part of the same idea. When you study the hydrologic cycle, when you're you know, in high school or in college, you learn about these processes. And Dr. Gleek is really just someone who understands this maybe better than anybody else in the world and, you know, is is very outspoken and very passionate about the need for us to address rising temperatures and to cut global emissions of greenhouse gases. Peter Glick, who is a leading expert on how climate change is impacting the water cycle. He's a MacArthur Fellow and the co-founder of the Pacific Institute a non-governmental organization based in Oakland, California, that focuses on environmental sustainability. Peter, thanks so much for joining us. Sure, thanks for having me on. The Glasgow Climate Change Conference, which officials in the United States, as well as governmental leaders, are billing as a desperately needed opportunity to forge an agreement to curb greenhouse gas emissions. Can you lay out what you see as the stakes for reaching such an agreement? Well... It is a critical time. You know, this is COP26, which means there have been 25 of these things already. Uh, We're way behind the curve in acting on what we have known for many, many years to be the reality, which is that humans are changing the climate, that those changes are going to be bad, that they're going to accelerate as we move forward if we don't get emissions under control, and that we're running out of time to prevent the worst case scenarios from occurring. And so a lot of us are looking forward to COP26 as a as an opportunity to make some real progress. But of course, we're worried that COP26 will turn out to be like COP25 and COP24 and COP23 before us and not really produce the kinds of changes that we know are necessary. Specifically in, the, in what is sort of now the latest of the UN sort of grim reports about leading up to this conference, uh, the UN on October 6th warns that climate change is going to help bring about 
a global water crisis. That's specifically your area of expertise. Right. Can you sketch out the basics of of what that means? What is the global water crisis that's coming? Well, of course, the climate cycle and the water cycle that most of us remember from second grade are all intimately connected. You know, the the hydrologic cycle, the renewable cycle of water on the planet is evaporation and the formation of clouds. And then we get rainfall and snow precipitating out again, and then runoff back to the oceans and then evaporation. That's the hydrologic cycle. That's the water cycle that we're all dependent on. And that's fundamentally the climate cycle as well. As we change the climate, we have learned over the last many decades that we are also going to fundamentally change how much water we get and where we get it, the intensity of storms, uh, rainfall patterns, the severity of droughts and floods, uh, the demand for water from crops and from our natural vegetation, all of those things are happening. And we've moved from a world in which we expected those things to happen to a world in which we are now seeing those things happening. Uh, we know that the, the water cycle is changing. We're getting more severe floods and more severe droughts. Temperatures have gone up consistently over the last many decades. That's what people tend to think about when we think about climate change. But those higher temperatures means the demand for water is higher. The loss of water from our reservoirs evaporating off is higher. The demand for water from agricultural crops is greater. Uh, and so the warnings that the climate cycle and the water cycle are changing and that those impacts are going to be increasingly severe uh, are now coming true. I'm interested in that point in which you're, you're talking about you know, this moment in time where we're really seeing it, it feels like the past few years, um, you know, we, we've seen these models, you know, come true with sort of startling clarity. Your own research, you know, you decades ago, you, you predicted a lot of what seems to be coming to pass right now. Talk to me about, as a scientist on a personal level, I mean, there, there must be some sort of a validation that, you know, hey, see, I, the stuff, the research I was doing for so long is, is really you know, bearing exactly the kind of, for lack of a better term, fruit. Yeah. So that vindicates the science, but it also on a personal level must be somewhat horrifying. Yeah. So it's hard for those of us who have been working on climate sciences for, for so long, not to think at least to ourselves and maybe sometimes admittedly out loud, we told you so, you know, we, we've been issuing these warnings for a long time. Interestingly enough, uh, the Nobel Prize for Physics just this week was awarded to one of the first climate scientists who worked on climate models, a, a man named Sukiyoro Manabe from Princeton, who developed some of the earliest climate models really in the 60s and the 70s that, that even then told us we could expect to see some of the things we're now seeing. And my work built on early, earlier climate scientists. I modeled some of the earliest impacts of climate change on water resources. And yes, some of the things that we thought we would see, we expected to see, we predicted we would see, we're now seeing. It's no consolation that we're seeing those things now. It's, you know, it's a vindication of the earlier work of many, many people. But it's sad to understand that if the policymakers had paid more attention years ago, Mm -hmm. the impacts that we're seeing now wouldn't have been prevented, but would be much less. Mm -hmm. uh, and now we're in for some impacts that could have been avoided, but unfortunately won't be avoided. 
Are there any impacts that we're seeing now that are surprising to us? I, I understand that you know some of the timing, it seems that the climate change is unfolding much quicker than some people first predicted or thought it would happen. Are, are there things specifically that you're seeing, perhaps with the water cycle, that you're surprised about? Yeah, so in general, no. Um, there aren't any surprises. But there have been some surprises in the sense that in some ways, climate scientists have been too conservative in our, our projections of what would happen. Our, our models have failed to account for some of the, the speed at which we're seeing these changes occur. So, for example, we always knew that, that as warming would, would proceed, we would see losses of, of snow and ice in the high latitudes in the, in the Arctic. But the dramatic changes that we've seen in the Arctic in the last decade or so have been faster than we anticipated we're seeing the changes in snowfall and snowmelt in the mountains that the early models projected. But some of those changes are happening faster than we expected. Maybe a surprise would be the rate at which the oceans are acidifying. You know, one of the consequences of more CO2 in the atmosphere is more CO2 in the ocean as the oceans absorb some of the carbon dioxide and the greenhouse gases that we've emitted. And that's causing acidification in the ocean faster than I think many of us expected to occur. So the surprises are really in the speed and severity of the impacts that we're now we're now beginning to see. When you talk about the acidification of the ocean, that leads to things like you know mass bleaching uh, events of coral reefs and potentially can destabilize an entire ecosystem. Is that that the consequence there? Yeah, so the bleaching of corals again, that's a good example, something that's happening faster and more uh, severely than we anticipated, is a consequence not just of the acidification of the ocean. The ocean's getting a little more acid as it absorbs this carbon dioxide, but is also associated with the fact that oceans are absorbing a lot of the heat. The air temperatures that we've been, we, we were experiencing now would actually be even higher if the oceans themselves were not absorbing some of that high temperature, and the oceans are warming up faster. All of those are contributing to the coral bleaching, the changes in coral health, the changes in health of the ocean that we're seeing. Just on a general level, I've, I've seen some of your lectures on YouTube and, and whatnot, but you, you've said that the impact on water resources will be among the most important consequences of climate change. And earlier, you sort of linked climate change and the water cycle directly. What gives you the most pause when you say something like among the most important consequences? What what specifically are you alarmed about? Well, so this is partly tied to the fact that water itself is so important to us. Water is tied to everything that we care about. It's, you know, 80% of the water humans use goes to grow the food that we eat. And water is tied to the health of natural ecosystems and our own personal health, human health. And it's tied to industrial production. It's tied to the goods and services that we want. We use water every day to clean our clothes and our dishes and to wash our, you know, wash our bodies. So water is fundamental to everything that we care about. And as we change the climate, any changes in the hydrologic cycle, any changes in the quality or the quantity of water we get affects humans and affects natural ecosystems. And so we have a whole series of crises worldwide associated with water. And the fact that climate is changing how much water we get and when we get it and where we get it and water quality just reinforces the crises that we're facing around water in general. 
climate change is playing out in different ways all around the country, all around the world. And the enormity of the problem is really something I think people are just starting to get their their heads around, the lay people are, are just really starting to grapple with. It's become clear, for instance, in the United States that how climate change plays out depends on where you live. Sea level rise on the coasts, it, it has the potential to affect aquifers and drinking water in places like South Florida, you know, flash flooding events, throughout much of the country, drought out here in the West, you know, famine potentially because of crop failure. Given all these, you know, multiple impacts, is there a place that the, you think the United States should immediately focus on one of these issues or can they be separated and, and dealt with that way? Or do we need to just look at this as a problem of first getting emissions under control? So that was a good summary of the wide scope and severity of the consequences that that we're likely to face and are starting to face as the climate changes. The climate, like water, is connected to everything we care about. It influences food production and human health and, of course, the severity of hurricanes that strike our coasts and sea level itself that that influences flooding along the coasts and the disasters that we're increasingly experiencing or that we're experiencing that are more and more severe. And the question that you raise, you know, should we focus on mitigation or adaptation? You know, a long time ago, I would have said, let's focus on mitigation and then we have to do less adaptation. The more we prevent climate changes from, from getting severe, the less adaptation we have to deal with. But the reality today is that we can't do one and not the other. We have to do both. We have to address mitigation of greenhouse gases. That is, we have to deal with the energy system and reduce the emissions of carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases. But we can no longer avoid the issue of adaptation. We have to adapt now to those climate changes we can no longer avoid. Uh, you know, some, sometimes we talk about this in the climate area as we have to mitigate those emissions to prevent having to adapt to the climate changes we can no longer adapt to, but we have to adapt to those climate changes we can no longer mitigate. And if we don't do both, the third consequence is suffering. We have to suffer the consequences of our failure to both mitigate and adapt. You know, sort of spiraling off of that answer is the question of, given the efforts that are needed in both mitigation and, uh, you know, addressing the specific outcomes. I'm wondering if you see what you see the role of scientists playing in terms of a helping inform a political debate, getting directly involved in the politics of climate change. It seems like it's going to be a Herculean effort just to get two parties in this country alone to agree on any sort of a solution. And how they go about doing that without relying heavily on the view of scientists, it seems almost impossible. So I'm wondering what, what kind of role you see climate scientists and, and experts playing in the decisions that are lie ahead for us? Yeah, that's two difficult, two separate and related and difficult questions. Um, you know, I'm a scientist by training. Uh, my career has been to try and understand the nature of these challenges and to understand the solutions that are available for them. But I'm also, I also think of my role as a communicator. It's always been important to me personally to try and communicate both what the science tells us and what options are available for policymakers. 
Um, not all scientists are comfortable with that role. Many scientists are, in fact, deeply uncomfortable with stepping out into a communications role or an advocacy role or an activism role. But, you know, scientists are people. We have, we have opinions. We have, we have families. We have, you know, we have children, and we think about the future just like anybody else does. And so I think there's an important role for scientists to both understand and communicate what we know about these challenges. But again, that's a personal decision. I think communicating the, the nature of the science is critically important. In the end, though, it's policymakers who have to take the science and choose what to do about it. Without good science, policymakers can make good policy. With bad science, policymakers make bad policy. And so part of, again, part of my personal effort has been pushing back against some of the bad science that's been pushed out there by climate deniers, by those who have a vested interest in the status quo of burning fossil fuels. And that's been a, a piece of the puzzle over many years. But in the end, it's up to policymakers to take good science and to do what they can to push forward on policy. And the fact that in the United States, climate policy has become controversial it's become a political issue, is sort of unusual to the United States. In many parts of the world, climate scientists talk about what the reality is and policymakers act or they don't act, but it's not been a left-wing, right-wing kind of an issue. That's really sort of been unique to the United States. And if we don't get over it, if we don't get past it, it's going to continue to delay the critical policy that we really need to put in place. And on that, I'm not heartened by the way that the U.S. dealt with the pandemic and the politicization of, you know, leading yeah. experts in the medical field. And it, it, it certainly makes you think, boy, if I was a climate scientist, I don't know if I'd be the one wanting to take the podium next to Joe Biden in the briefing room just to become a political punching bag for Biden's political opponents. I mean, it, it seems all too similar to me. It is. And it's it's depressing at times. Every climate scientist I know gets hate mail. You know, we all have files in our computers of the hate mail we get and the, the vilification that we get from anti-science voices, but they need to shut up. I mean, I, I'll be aggressive about this. The science that we're doing tells us certain things, and it tells us that the planet is under threat and that human health is under threat and that our economies are under threat. And some of us have to be willing and have been willing to stand up and say these things and, and take the abuse, take the anti-science vilification. But these issues are too important to be, to be silent about. And I'm sorry to see the assaults on science, not just in climate, but of, as you point out, in the health field, in other fields as well. Uh, but we have to get over that and we have to push past that and we have to move toward the realities that we're facing. Now, now the good news is that more and more Americans realize, in part because of the actual impacts they're experiencing, that climate change is real and that the consequences are going to be bad. And that has pushed public opinion in the right direction. And it's slow and it's been too slow. But we are moving now in the right direction. And the voices that say climate change isn't real are a tiny minority of ideologically driven voices. And they're very few. And they still get a, you know, they still get a platform on many of our media, in many of our media outlets. 
but that has to change. What do you see as the, I mean, I've heard John Kerry speak about the need for emerging technologies to play a role in helping us decarbonize the planet and, and the atmosphere. I'm wondering if you've been consulted by private business, private companies, or or how you see them playing a role in getting us to where we need to be to avoid the worst of climate change's consequences. Yeah. So again, this gets back to this question of um, the science versus policy. The science tells me something. It tells me that we absolutely have to act to reduce our emissions of greenhouse gases. It's critical that we do that and that we have to act to adapt to those climate changes we can no longer avoid. How we do that is a tougher policy question, and I'm more agnostic about that. I don't know, actually, whether a carbon tax or a cap-and-trade system or penalties on fossil fuel companies and removal of fossil fuel subsidies or, or giving subsidies to renewable energy is the best way to go. I just know that we can decarbonize our energy system, and that's you know, there are technologies for doing that and there are economic strategies for doing that. There are public policy strategies for doing that. It's up to policymakers to make those, de those decisions about what is the best approach. My work has focused on certain aspects of this, on water resources. Uh, some of my research has suggested that, in fact, it's hugely economically beneficial to cut the emissions of greenhouse gases associated, for example, with our water system by reducing the amount of energy we spend to collect and treat and distribute water. We just issued a report at my Pacific Institute a few weeks ago looking at how much energy is required to produce and use the water that we use and its strategies for reducing that energy footprint. You know, so that's a good example of policy that in the water area could do two positive things. It could improve the efficiency with which we use water and save water in the process. And it can reduce the amount of energy required to do the water things that we want and the greenhouse mm -hmm. gas emissions associated with the water things that we want. Those are scientific, those are research uh, outcomes that our work has, has highlighted. And it suggests policies that policymakers ought to pursue as top priorities. So bringing this back to Glasgow, just to finish up here, how optimistic are you that policymakers will follow the lead of research like your own in in coming up with solutions that will be meaningful going forward? So the outcome of Glasgow really has to be firm commitments on the part of governments to set targets to reduce greenhouse gas emissions and then to somehow drive commitments on the part of those governments internally to develop the strategies that they think are most appropriate to reduce those emissions within each country. In country A, the policy might be different than in country B for reducing those emissions. That's up to the countries themselves, but the, setting the targets to reduce emissions faster than they're coming down now, and then at the international level, and then setting those commitments within each country to figure out how to meet those targets. That, that's the outcome we have to achieve at Glasgow. All right, Peter, well, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us. Your expertise is certainly appreciated in this area. Thank you. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Thank you.